Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. If you're a pro, you know that this is not efficient because you know there's a better way. There's also a better way to save. When pro customers buy building supplies in bulk at Lowe's, they save up to 20% every day. Buy in bulk and save up to 20% on concrete, gypsum, and gypsum accessories. At Lowe's, buy more, save more. Visit the Pro Desk or Lowe'sForPros.com for details. Discount applies to contractor pack items. Minimum purchase required, U.S. only. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic strategist with a bipartisan firm, Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster and co-founder of the firm, Echelon Insights. And each week, we're going to reveal the hidden secrets of the public mind, looking at the biggest polling stories driving news, politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. And what's particularly exciting this week is that polling really is the story. And I was reminded of something similar. I was listening to, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and I was listening to one called, I think it's Awesome Etiquette, with the descendants of Emily Post, right? So it's you know, post-grandchildren or great-nieces or something. And they had a similar moment where uh, you may have heard, Kristen, about the baby crying in the diner in Maine that made national news. Like the diner's owner went and got yelled at the baby. The baby was crying too much in a restaurant. Who's at fault? The diner owner who yelled at a child or the parents of the baby who didn't take the baby out right away. And this was such big news to the etiquette community that they had teams of etiquette experts talking about, you know, how, what do you do about the crying baby? How long, you know, how, how long should you keep a crying baby in a diner before you take the crying baby? Okay. Is it okay for a restaurant owner to yell at a baby? These were all etiquette questions that, you know, caused the entire etiquette community to be kind of in the news. And I thought that's kind of like Donald Trump, he's like the crying, you know, crying baby of, of the polling news where this has become like a huge week for polls being dominating the news and the industry of polling dominating the news. And we actually have, in fact, a crying baby to top it all off. I'm laughing because I'm like, this is foreshadowing. This is foreshadowing right now. I know. I was thinking about this. And then we actually have a crying baby in our show. So it all comes together um, quite nicely. But um, but hopefully the crying baby in this show will not make news. <laughs> that will stay right here. Um, so what are the key top lines today? So today's show, we are going to focus on the debate and the process that got us to the 10 people who are in Fox's main, uh, I think, 9 p.m. debate that's coming up Thursday night. Uh, August 6th in Cleveland. Um, and we're going to be joined by Lee Mirangoff, um, the man behind the Marist poll, uh, who this week made a pretty, uh, I thought, interesting and, and kind of laudable decision uh, to suspend polling on the horse race so that their polling would not be used as one of the five polls that Fox would, would take into consideration to choose who's on the stage. So we will have that interview for you. Um, here in our show. 
Great. So, I mean, there are, you know, a few things that I think are really interesting when you look at the news, right? So one, I mean, just to sort of level set here, I mean, the debate is this week. Um, it comes out after we're recording and the 10 folks that Fox puts on the stage, decides go, goes on the stage, it will be based on the last most recent wave of polls. So you had all these national outlets, whether it's NBC, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, Fox itself, CBS. Um, I don't think I'm missing any. I think that's it. Of that released something right before the deadline, which was Tuesday afternoon, to make sure the, their polls were included. And not only did you have this wave of polls released, you also had breathless coverage all over the place. You had Slate keep up a running tab of the polls and who's in the top 10. You had Washington Post. You had the Upshot New York Times cover it in addition to the outlets releasing the polls themselves i mean it was a it was a it was fascinating to watch plus in the midst of this you have mara saying maybe we shouldn't be doing this and then other folks you have the candidates weighing in saying you know this is this is not the way we should be doing things i mean what do you make of this from the republican side i mean what are republicans saying about this Kristen, in terms of you know uh, what it means for the actual debate so my my friends who are at the RNC have been adamant. There's the sort of line that they're they're going with is like one, it was up to Fox, it was not up to the RNC, so don't blame us. And two, technically everybody is in the debate. It's just there are two of them. But but I mean really there's just one main debate. I, you know, the other one is not going to have the same kind of ratings, get the same kind of attention. And frankly, if you're not in that first in, or in the, the the main big debate, you know, it's the sort of thing where you can see donors, et cetera, going like, ah, you know, maybe t- thinking twice before writing a check to someone um, who who's not in that top 10. I mean, look, uh, and frankly, you know, let's be realistic here. I mean, junkies like us are going to be watching, you know, at one or both of the debates for a lot of people what their news of the debate is just going to be based on what kind of zingers, what gets shared, what goes viral, what makes the coverage. Um, and, and that's, you know, and that's a different kind of debate experience altogether. So, I mean, you're talking about, you know, a huge you know, a huge amount of winnowing and a huge amount of news about the winnowing that maybe is not necessarily comparable to the amount of people paying attention to the actual debate. Yeah. Well, and I think the thing that's also disappointing from a Republican perspective is there are some folks who are now in this undercard debate, this, you know, early happy hour debate, whatever we're calling it, who are I think really interesting voices that would bring a lot to the table. I mean, I think Gosh, Rick Perry 2.0, hipster glasses Rick Perry. I really like him. I and he's the one that has been taking the fight to Trump the yes. last few weeks. He is and he's the one that was like on the bubble who who wound up not making the cut. Um you've Rick Santorum who I don't shed too many tears over him not being included because look, he's run for president before multiple times. America has told him twice that they did not want him to be president. So, you know, America's heard Rick Santorum before. But Bobby Jindal's never run for president before. So that, you know, he's been the governor of Louisiana. I think he's got a very interesting story. Carly Fiorina this morning was on Morning Joe with me, um, not like in the same room. Um, But she, you know, did this great phone interview where she basically at the end was just like she dropped the mic and the hosts were like, wow, she's not going to be in this debate. What a bummer. Um, So I just I think that's the one thing where I'm like, man, I wish there was a way we could have done this. That didn't. You obviously can't have more than ten people on a stage, but I wish there was a way we could have done this that didn't so clearly say you ten are in, 
The yeah. rest of you are the losers. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I mean, you have, you know, you have former governors from New York and Texas, you know, <laughs> in like two major, you, you know, huge population centers. You have, uh, you know, a senator from an early primary voting state. I mean, you have, you know, you have a former senator from a battleground state. I mean, you had the governor of a battleground state barely make it into the top 10. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, some of these key, you know, key states, key leaders, you know, had a hard time getting into the top 10 or didn't make it into the top Top ten. I think that's why I heard someone call it the happy hour debate, the adults table, <laughs> as opposed to the kids table, which I thought was it's pretty It's very funny. possible that it will be. So the other thing that I that I, I thought was fun about the Fiorina interview this morning is that she kind of went into polling analyst mode for a little bit of the interview. Um, I'm sitting there with my earpiece in, like kind of fist pumping, like, yes, you go, girl, because she, she was explaining that, look, her name ID is maybe at 40% in some of these polls that you have like six out of 10 Republican voters who have never really heard of Carly Fiorina. The whole point of these debates is to hear from people that you might not have heard from otherwise. And if you're, you're eliminating people who are at 40% name ID, but you know, that's, that's not enough to get you in the top 10. Um, that's kind of un- unfortunate. And so there's there's this talk then, like, what would be the other methodology besides just a bunch of, you know, Roger Ailes or Rupert Murdoch or whomever from Foxland or News Corp sitting around in a room and deciding what are other ways you could, could use polling? Um, you know, should you just use early state polling? Right now, Bloomberg has something out. They're calling the Selzer score. So um, Ann Selzer is a, a famous pollster. Um, she is based in Iowa. Nobody knows Iowa better than her. She nails Iowa all the time. Um, even when everybody else, her polls differ from everybody else, hers is always the poll that's right. So um, so they had her put together this thing they call the Selzer score. Um, and it kind of takes into account not just who's your first choice, but who's who people's first and second choices are combined and also factors in this question about, you know, would you ever... Uh, could you ever support this person, um, you know, somebody that, that they didn't name as their first or second pick? And actually, if you look at her scores, she finds that uh, perhaps Rick Perry should have qualified and should have qualified over Chris Christie, Ted Cruz or John Kasich, which Cruz surprises me because you never really hear Cruz's name as being one of these people on the bubble. Um, but so that fascinated me a lot, but then she has, uh, yeah, she has Perry above both Christie Cruz and Kasich. And she actually has Santorum ahead of Kasich as well. That if you look at her score, uh, you know, this, this should, would not have been, uh, the, the field would have looked a little bit different. I think that's a, that's an interesting and maybe a little more complete uh, way to think about the field. You know, and if we step away from the horse race for a moment, which we should, because good grief, it's August, right? So it's, it's pretty, it's pretty darn early. But, um, but a lot of the polls that were released in the last few days, while important to setting the debate stage, had some actually interesting stuff that's very similar to that beneath the surface, right? So if you look at the NBC Wall Street Journal poll, they had a question, what impact are these candidates having on the Republican 
Republican Party image, right? And if you look at Trump, and this is a, uh, and this is among Republicans, um, about a fifth say he's helping the party image. You have 61% saying he's hurting the party image. We talked about this last week. We had a hypothesis. We don't know the answer, but Republicans say he's actually hurting the image of the party. Jeb Bush, you have almost half saying he has no impact on the party. If you look up the Democratic side, um, uh, or maybe these questions were asked of everybody. That makes more sense, right? Of the Democratic side, Sanders is people are evenly divided, whether he's helping or hurting or has no impact. You have a, a plurality say Clinton is hurting the Democratic Party image. Um, you have something comparable in the Fox poll where they said, would you never, would you ever vote for this person? Similar to what you're talking about. Trump's never vote went down. It was 59% in June. Now it's a third. A third say they would never support him. So while he still has some, he still has some, you know, some trouble, uh, obviously some warning signs, right? He still has uh, very high unfavorables relative to the rest of the field and certainly with general election voters. He has made some improvement on some of these key functions. Um, and key dimensions. There was another question in here where, uh, where people asked, you know, were asked, does he say what, what he thinks? Does he say what's on his mind? And people seem to like that, the sort of why behind it. But it's interesting that he still has this, you know, I'd never support him. He might be hurting the party piece despite being very clearly up at the top. I feel like Donald Trump is the salt and vinegar potato chips of this race right now. <laughs> like you either love him and you're like, he is my flavor. Or you were like, who eats this? Who thinks that putting vinegar on potato chips is a good idea? Um, I have been a convert on salt and vinegar potato chips. So perhaps people can flip their positions on him. Yes, but, you just um, got to get in there and then and then it's good. You know, the yeah, first. well, and the, the, the other interesting piece of polling data about Donald Trump that I caught this week is NBC Wall Street Journal – they actually released um, crosstabs of uh, how different demographic groups feel about Donald Trump. So in recent weeks, we've talked on the show about, um, you know, not just how is Donald Trump affecting the brand, but is Donald Trump somebody who can appeal to a broad electorate? Like, who is the Trump voter? And, you know, there hasn't been a lot of good data about, say, age groups and how those shake out. And so I get asked in interview after interview because I've been doing all this selfie vote millennial politics stuff. Well, how is Donald Trump playing with millennials? And I've had to be really honest and say, I don't have good data to answer your question. Well, now I have good data. Thank you, NBC News, Wall Street Journal. So surprise, surprise, millennials are the age group where Donald Trump does the worst. Only 19% of 18 to 34 year olds say they have a positive view of Donald Trump. 61% say they have a negative view. That's a net negative of 42 they're showing. Um, and that's so, overall, that's general election millennials? That's overall, that's that's their whole sample. Yeah. That's, yeah. Um, and, and the idea being that, you know, if you look at overall fave unfave of Trump, the exact demographic groups that the RNC post-election report two years ago said, Republicans need to be appealing to these groups. They are the exact same groups that are just not feeling Donald Trump these days. <laughs> um, people with college degrees or post-grads, um, women, you know, including white women, by the way, which is a, a demographic group that showed big drops in favorability for Hillary Clinton and are a group that Republicans, you know, say, well, we need to win the women's vote, but actually Mitt Romney, I think won white women. Um, but it's, you know, all of these groups that Republicans say we need to do better with are the exact groups that Donald Trump is just 
kind of clearly turning off. And then in the primary, he does well across almost across every single subgroup that has been released or that people have been uh, that the pollsters have mentioned. Uh, surprisingly to me, he does particularly well with evangelicals, which to me I just find like throws out the playbook altogether because you know the the candidate that seems less least likely to be able to appeal to evangelicals to me would be Donald Trump and you know based on his own his own life path I guess and and history and and issue profile to the extent he has one but um so I I find that you know ama- amazingly I- incredible and you know just a real sign of how this phenomenon is really not necessarily about issues but about a reaction to politics as usual and the status quo um something we've talked you know we we've, we've talked about uh quite a bit I mean what do, what do you make of that I think the reason why he does very well among across that ideological spectrum is precisely for the reasons we've been talking about, that there are a lot, you know, when people say, well, what's the appeal of Donald Trump and, and, you know, someone who's a pollster, we give these kind of like, well, we don't really know. It could be a lot of things. I think that's actually the answer. I think it is a lot of things. I think for some people, particularly in that moderate bucket, it's folks who he's the last name they heard on the news. Um, I think for folks in the very conservative bucket, it's like, yeah, he's tough on immigration. Maybe for folks in the just normal, you know, middle conservative, somewhat conservative bucket, it's he doesn't sound like a politician. And I like that. I mean, I think actually if he just had a ton of support among Tea Party folks or just had a lot of support among moderates, you know, that would give us a hint. Right. If it was just among moderates, I'd say, well, it's dissatisfaction with the status quo and it's name ID. Or if it was just big among the very conservative, I'd say, well, it's the immigration stuff and it's his tough rhetoric. But because it's across the board, I mean, I think the answer is all of the above. I think different types of voter are finding different things they can like in Donald Trump and are sort of putting the other things out of their mind at this point because there is this vacuum that Donald Trump has filled. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and then the question is, you know, the next question is, what does all this mean for how the debate itself is going to play out? Um, the Bloomberg Seltzer poll uh, asked, what do you think is the better path? And this is among Republicans, uh, the better path for Republican candidates to take. Just barely half said play nice and avoid criticism to not damage the ultimate nominee. But you have 40 percent basically say go after fellow Republicans with direct criticism to show points of difference. I mean, that's a pretty divided answer. I mean, it, it shows that there is a real appetite for contention, that for discussion and, you know, heated debate. And, and that, you know, that may be why you have some candidates. I mean, don't forget Ben Carson, who comes in fourth or fifth in some of these lists, um, is on the stage as opposed to the quote-unquote adults table. I am interested to see to what extent the polls change after this debate. And I think it will have everything to do not just with, you know, which candidates get the the hot YouTube moment, um, but whether, you know, somebody like a Ben Carson, who does he try to draw a contrast with? So if, if you've got Donald Trump, who's kind of his own like bracket here in the debate, um, I think that the the best strategy, you know, not necessarily like going after Trump or what have you, is to watch as people position themselves in relation to one another besides just just Trump. So, you know, does Ted Cruz take the fight to Mike Huckabee and they battle over who's more socially conservative and hates the Supreme Court decision in gay marriage more? And then do you have, um, you know, Ben Carson sort of duking it out with 
uh, a Ted Cruz as well over, you know, who dislikes Washington more? Um, or do you have John Kasich debating Jeb over who's the better establishment guy? I mean, I'm, they're only going to have precious minutes on that stage because there are so many of them. So seeing to what extent they use it to try to draw distinctions with their fellow non-Trump contenders is what I'm the most interested to see. On the Democratic side, there's been such big news on the Republican polling debate that it, you can you would almost miss the fact that Hillary Clinton actually went on the air this week. And there have been a couple polls that have showed uh, a continuing narrowing of the of the race, uh, particularly in New Hampshire, um, where there continues to be a, a little bit of a narrowing um, of uh, of Sanders relative to Clinton. That's even before we start taking into account a potential Joe Biden candidacy. In the national polls, there's also still, it's not just New Hampshire, nationally, there continues to be uh, evidence of a narrowing uh, in the Democratic side between Sanders and and Clinton, um, particularly among white women. That's what NBC Wall Street Journal reports, that that's something that's going to be crucial. We'll hear from Lee, uh, crucial for both Clinton or an eventual Republican nominee. I think, I mean, female voters are going to be huge. I took a look at the exit polls from the last couple of presidential races um, because I, I just had a survey that came out today all about female voters in Ohio. And, you know, we I wanted to see to what extent do Republicans have to win female voters um, in order to win the White House. And in the last like five or six presidential elections, you know, Democrats always win female voters overall. Um, but the one presidential election out of the last couple where Republicans actually won the popular vote, um, they closed the gap and only lost female voters by three points. So, you know, Republicans don't have to win women to win the White House, but losing women by double digits is what we've done every time we have lost the popular vote um, going back into the 90s. So, you know, the Winning women voters is really important. And the assumption has been among Republicans that, well, Hillary Clinton will be super strong among um, women. So we'll have to do extra good with men uh, or we'll have to at least kind of like hold the line. And if she's struggling with white women, um, that that represents a big opportunity for Republicans, because that's exactly the demographic group that Republicans, I think, won. I think Republicans have won white women, even in the last election, that actually most of the gender gap is a lot about um, the attitudes of women of color and how they are overwhelmingly in favor of Democratic candidates. If Hillary Clinton is struggling with white women, I mean, that presents Republicans with an opportunity. Now, will we take advantage of it? Will or will things settle back and will Hillary Clinton ultimately overcome them? I mean, that's why she's gone up in the air, I assume, this early on in New Hampshire with ads that are all about her mother, um, I can only imagine that she, that's the sort of data that she's seeing as well. Right, right, absolutely. And you know, the the ultimately the issue is going to be gender. How does gender play a role, and how does party play a role? Women are going to lean more Democratic, so it's always uh, a challenge when you're looking at these numbers. Is there a gender thing going on? Is it a racial breakout thing going on? Is it a party breakout uh, that's that's happening? What's the cause of the slide? Is it simply just her numbers overall have slid, and so? 
uh, and so that's why she's doing a little less well with white women. I- I'm assuming that that's what it is, that she- she's doing less well with independents and Republicans. As a result, her numbers with white women are dropping. Um, how, how do Republicans, um, you know, counter that? I mean, they counter that by having policies, you know, talking about policies that really uh, help women and, you know, speak directly to women. I-, I am interested to see to what extent we, in future weeks of polling, see. So there was this other you know, this gaffe that we'll see if it comes up to what extent this whole Planned Parenthood issue comes up. Because the other thing is that this NBC Wall Street Journal poll showed Planned Parenthood actually had a really good fave on fave, better than anybody running for president. Um, and so this question of, of, you know, female voters uh, earlier this week, Jeb Bush made a statement where he was talking about defunding Planned Parenthood, but he made a statement to the effect of, you know, half a half a billion dollars for women's health initiatives. Is that the right amount? And he meant Planned Parenthood, but he said women's health initiatives, which is fundamentally very different. And his campaign immediately put out a statement saying, I misspoke. That's not what I meant. I didn't mean to say we spend too much on women's health. But yeah. of course, this is going to be a campaign ad from here until next November. You've already seen Hillary Clinton out there talking about it. So it's clear that as soon as a Republican sort of throws an easy pitch down the middle on these issues that Hillary Clinton is like, yes, let me swing at it so that I can try to regain and recapture this momentum. And you also saw a shift, I think, in Hillary Clinton messaging on this Planned Parenthood issue where last week she had been a little quieter and had said that maybe she thought the videos were disturbing. And this week she's been tweeting out like stand with Planned Parenthood you want to vote to defund Planned Parenthood, you're voting against women. Like the politics of how Hillary Clinton has talked about the issue, from my perspective, have changed a mm. lot in the last week. And I'm, I'm assuming that her internal polling is showing similar things to the NBC Wall Street Journal poll showing, hey, Planned Parenthood is maybe more popular than you know, the news coverage around these videos would have people believe. Yeah. I mean, it, I, there are a couple of things that are interesting. One, Planned Parenthood and the NRA had very similar favorability ratings in that NBC Wall Street Journal poll. So I'm sure there are folks on the left who are like, I can't believe the NRA has numbers like this. And folks on the right, like, I can't believe Planned Parenthood has numbers like this because they really are very similar with, of course, very predictable party breakouts, and which NBC, I think, also reported on. The, the other thing that I think is particularly interesting when you're talking about this gaffe and women's health is so often we and folks on the left do it particularly use women's health as um, a euphemism for things like abortion and and, uh, reproductive choice. And then when you have that phrase meaning one thing and then that's it seemed like the way Jeb Bush was potentially using it. It gets confusing, right? Does he mean women's health? Does he mean breast cancer coverage? Or does he mean abortion? And that's where, you know, both sides, uh, can, can, can really think of, you know, find different ways to poke holes into everybody else's language. But it's just a different, it's interesting how that phrase itself gets used so many different ways. Well, now, uh, given that, so I am here reporting from Cleveland live. <laughs> not actually live. This is a recorded show. And also, I think we're uh, live nothing to is, tape. <laughs> I'm in Cleveland, but really I'm just hanging out in my room at the hotel again with pillows around me. Like last week, this is becoming a bit of a theme. Um, you know, we're, we're obviously, I mean, the, the, the show this week and the whole story has been about the debate and we are now so excited to be able to talk with Lee Mirangoff of the Marist poll. 
We're so excited to have Lee Marigoff here from Marist talking about what is big polling news this week, and that is uh, your decision to suspend uh, horse race polling in advance of the debate. So, Lee, thanks so much for joining us. Tell us a little bit about um, your decision, what was behind it, and how do you feel now that the that the debate is uh, is upon us? Well, I, you know, for, first of all, thank you for, for uh, uh, inviting me on the program. Um, technically, we didn't suspend the poll. We actually did the poll. Uh, we just didn't do the ballot question. So we uh, you know, got away from horse races so that our poll could not be used as part of the eligibility criteria. So we have favorable unfavorables and we have matchups against Hillary Clinton and all kinds of other nice things, but uh, avoiding intentionally having uh, the, the toss-up question uh, then you know, t- uh, took us out of the consideration to be part of the process. And the reason simply is we felt very strongly that uh, polls, uh, which as, as you guys know, are you know, estimates within margins of error, uh, and subject to all kinds of other uh, idiosyncratic factors. Of, uh, if you take an average of five polls, it creates its own margin of error. Um, decimal points and everything else, we just felt that this was a bad use of public polls. So we did not, you know, want to be part of that. And, uh, you know, we you know, recite the Boy Scout Oath. And, you know, I'm sure we'll be doing plenty of horse race polls soon enough. We've done state polls in Iowa and New Hampshire with NBC News. Um, but those were not, you know, which included horse races, but those were not part of, uh, you know, the debate criteria. So we didn't have a problem with that. Uh, but this national poll with McClatchy News, and we're very happy that they supported our, our, our desire to not do um uh, the toss-up questions. Uh, so we we did we skipped it this time, and and that was the way uh, that's the way we got to that. It had the this is Kristen jumping in by the way. Had the uh, had the folks in at Fox News decided instead of doing national polls, they were just going to look at early state polls, Iowa, New Hampshire. Uh, given that you do polling with NBC um, in those early states. Would that have changed your your thought process at all if this had been a poll of early states? Was it more about the sort of misuse of polling generally, or was mm-hmm. it about the use of national polling versus well, early state polling? You know, that, that, that's interesting, and we, we didn't actually go down that thought process and would, would have to. Uh, uh, to be honest, no one's asked us that question. Uh, but certainly, um, you know, the idea that Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina has a lot more to do with what's going to really happen in six months on the road to the nomination than a national poll of Republicans and independent-leaning Republicans. Um, It makes more sense, actually, to be looking at Iowa and New Hampshire right now uh, to see who's doing well and, uh, you know, and who isn't. And, uh, you know, to look at the composition of Donald Trump's support and, you know, things of that nature probably tells us a lot more uh, than uh, the toss-up questions. And what I thought was interesting, so so the answer to that is we would have really had to think that one through. Um, uh, we didn't have to make that choice. And, uh, you know, I think some of the same issues probably would have been part of our thought process because, you know, there's one thing saying there's a, you know, a 1% floor, uh, you know, and if you're below 1% for the other 100 candidates that are out there, they don't make the debate. That's one thing. The other thing is to say, we're going to take top 10, because there's no place where that cutoff is. It could be 2%. It could be 5% of the support. So you could have significant support and not make a cutoff. 
And then we get into the whole margin of error discussion, which obviously becomes problematic. And, you know, maybe they should have taken, instead of a toss-up question, maybe they should have taken, uh, you know, who runs best against Hillary? Uh, in that case, you get different candidates, or right. who has the highest favorability, or who's uh, the best known, or yeah. Then else. you get you know Rick Perry's in that pool. So I mean, you 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 have you know all kinds of problems with this. I think Fox, to its credit, did the best they could in finding serious, scientifically based polls that use live interviewers with cell phones and all those kinds of things in trying. Once you got into this, to at least try to inform what a scientific poll is and, and they didn't go for any of the junk polls. So I thought that was good on Fox's on Fox's to Fox's credit, but I just don't think democracy is well served having public polls uh, affecting the behavior of the candidates. We had, you know, uh, one candidate, you know, with a golf club uh, hitting his cell phone. Someone else was using a chainsaw to go through the tax code. Um, Kasich obviously timed his announcement to get a poll bounce. Um, so there was just all kinds of things uh, that were that were bad about what's been going on, and now we have polls. We have a, we have a top ten, and they're clearly they overlap with margin of error, and even their position on the stage, which is not new to Fox and not new to 2016. But um, the position will be determined by decimal points. Well, so um, what would you say, Lee, to folks who say, look, you know, polls affect how candidates behave all the time. This is not anything new. I mean, there are, there, are, uh, you know, people look for opinions that are well poll tested. They respond to poll numbers by going up on the air with the timing of when they go on the air or where or what they sure. say. Um, that this is not something that just happened today. I mean, we've also probably all heard of candidates who go on the air in order to help boost their performance in a poll so then they can use that poll for fundraising down the road. I mean, there are all sure. kinds of other examples. Yeah. How does this one differ? Well, I mean, I think this this has to do with the first debate uh, with a very crowded field. And I think to be, you know, somewhat arbitrarily eliminating people uh, for this first debate was, was, was especially disturbing. Um, you know, if this was the fourth debate of the of the ten, it becomes less of a problem. I think right now, look, in our poll, thirty six percent don't have an opinion on Marco Rubio nationally. Forty two percent don't have an opinion on Scott Walker from Republicans and Republican leading independents. So even the ones who are sort of known to the political community are really not very well known to the um, to the uh, to the people who are going to be voting. So these lesser known candidates. Well, it just seems that there's now, you know, they're, they're the not ready for primetime candidates and they have, they didn't make the cut. So I think that's, that's what makes it particularly worrisome. And to have decimal points, as you guys know, is just, you know, mean, uh, you know a very big distinction with uh, very little, uh, with no statistical uh, difference. Yeah, this, this morning I, I heard, I think I read that something like the difference between Kasich and Perry, if you added up all the five polls, uh, it, it winds up being about 50 total interviews separating oh my God. So 50 people across the country pick up their phone and, and are just feeling a little different that evening. And you have a totally different race. Yeah, um, so, yeah. so, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Exactly. And I think that, you know, and so you do end up eliminating uh, Rick Perry, uh, who's obviously a former governor at one point was ahead four years ago in the polls nationally. Uh, you eliminate Santorum, who won 11 states. I'm not saying these guys should necessarily have been in it. But I think it might have made more sense to have two one-hour debates, eight people picked at random, uh, you know, for each hour session. They would have got about as much airtime as they're going to get anyway. 
and um, you know that might have uh, taken away this whole whole problem. The other question, well, this is, I know Margie, you know, I'd be interested in Margie's take when she comes back. But one of the the things that uh, we've talked about on the show a lot is this question of how do you actually ask people to differentiate between 17 different candidates? So, you know, we have these questions uh, where, you know, how do you how do you test a ballot? And I think that, that one of the headlines out of the whole Fox discussion is that the NBC Wall Street Journal poll was not actually included, even though it was one of the five. And and I thought I saw on Twitter that somebody said it's because of the way Wall Street Journal NBC asks their ballot, that they don't actually name all 17 candidates. They name like the top eight from previous polling and then say, you know, would you choose Bush, Rubio, Walker, et cetera, et cetera. And then after they name like eight or so, they say, or one of the other names from the previous question. Um, what's your take on that way of kind of overcoming this challenge of this being an enormous field and very hard to test? Well, well that, that's why my understanding is what you're, you're articulating. And I think, I mean, I don't know for a fact, but the, certainly that sound, that's what I heard why NBC Wall Street Journal was not included uh, because they didn't ask everybody. You know, I, you know we asked all 17 uh, when we, we do our polls in Iowa and New Hampshire uh, you know, we, 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 when we do our favorable, unfavorables of this national poll, when we asked them against Hillary Clinton, we matched up everybody. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's hard. And, and then you have to ask if you're leaning. I mean, it's a large field. It is unwieldy. Uh, it is unprecedented. And, uh, you know, it does, you know, you, you, you juggle the order, you, you know, you do what you can do. Uh, and that's why I said Fox sort of did once they decided to go down this road. I think they did a credible job, at least in trying to, uh, you know, pick from what there are the better, more scientifically done polls. Uh, but, you know, and be, the, the media has a job in covering the, the races and the polls have a job in measuring the outcomes. And I think in this instance, we had a situation where the roles get blurred when you have a media sponsored uh, poll. A media-sponsored debate uh, saying that we're not going to use our news judgment other than to say our news judgment is to rely on polls. And once you go down that, uh, you know, it becomes a very slippery slope. And I think that's what the controversy has been about. And that's why we ultimately decided uh, that we just didn't want to partake in it. But I should say, you know, uh, as I mentioned, you know, you know, that I've done my Boy Scout oath. I'm sure we be plenty of Marist. Uh, McClatchy toss-up questions down the road. I think the first time with so many unknown people, and gosh, it almost looks like the debate is going to, unless the first debate uh, you know, becomes more substantive because the second debate's all about Donald Trump, you know, in many ways that first group is really at a huge disadvantage, and I, I think it's too early for that. I have spent many of the last few uh, episodes of this podcast hyperventilating about <laughs> Donald Trump as as the Republican half of of our team, and so I'm I, I share your suspicion that maybe this first first round debate I've heard people calling it the undercard that that will be yes. the one that is a little more substantive. It, it may very well be, but I will say you know, to, and Donald Trump has become very interesting person in all this. Sure, uh, and uh, you know he does have significant support among. Party activists, he does well. We asked him one of our questions was whether you consider him to be serious or a distraction. And overall, Republicans aren't in love with him in terms of anything serious about the candidacy. But when it comes to Tea Party and strong partisan Republicans, he does much better. So the 
activist base is taking this very seriously. And I think that's why the candidates uh, are going to be very interesting to see in the debate, you know, how people like Jeb Bush and Walker and, and, and some of the others deal with Donald Trump. Uh, but I think we're, you know, going to have to have some discussion of issues. That's what the public really, I mean, everybody likes the, uh, the, the, the back and forth and the, and the, uh, and the gaffes and all that. But ultimately, you know, issues drive voters to the polls. And, and we really would like to see, I, you know, some kind of dialogue and, you know, this campaign is in many ways is a marathon, but it seems like a series of, uh, you know, sprints right now. It's been so many ups and downs and uh, we haven't even gotten anywhere near uh, the, the caucus and primaries. So yeah. it's, it's been quite, quite a, a very odd uh, election cycle. Of course, we say that every time, but I think this one takes the cake. Yeah. I mean, do you think that uh, the proliferation of, pollsters who are talking about polls, about reporters who cover polls, about whole news outlets that cover polls breathlessly. Do you think that that's uh, changed polling and changed the industry for the better? Or do you feel that that's maybe made polling too much of the story? Well, I mean, mean, right now, it's certainly, you know, I'd be hard pressed to, 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 to deny that polls in the horse race, were, you know, they were the story for the last week. And, you know, the debate over the debates is always something that we all get hung up on. And this time, the polling community really was driving the, the dialogue as, you know, you know, the news coverage was who would make the top 10 as of right now. And that became a, a kind of like, you know, as I say, it wasn't the cart leading the horse. It was, it was a couple of carts. I couldn't find the horse in there. Uh, but the, uh, you know, so, so look, I, I, I think we've had a proliferation of polls. Um, as I say, I give Fox credit for picking the more scientifically serious pollsters. Uh, you know, if you go on Real Clear Politics, there's lots of polls all the time, and some of them are done with a scientific basis, and some of them aren't. And um, so, you know, clearly, if part of this is to inform the public on, you know, how the sausage is made, uh, then that's a good thing. Um, but I think we've, you know, reached a point, <laughs> you know, I think I've read that there are actually fewer polls this time than there have been in previous election cycles because it's just gotten very expensive uh, because of response rates and the the need to call cell phones. Uh, Public polling has gotten more and more expensive and the candidates are, of course, going to be doing their polls. And and I do like to think that the public polls let let the public in on the secret of what all these campaigns know about who's doing well and who isn't and the like. So I think public polls serve a really valuable purpose for the democracy generally, but I don't think they do so when it determines who's going to be sitting around the table on on Thursday evening. One of the questions that I have for media pollsters that I'm really interested in your take on is the questions that you ask. So, uh, you know, there's the, there's favorable and unfavorable, there's direction of the country, there's ballot tests. What do you think is the most interesting question from your perspective as a pollster, like if, if I'm if I release a fresh set of cross tabs or a fresh set of, of, of top lines, what's the one that you think that's the question that is really going to tell us an awful lot about where this race is headed and what America thinks and feels? Um, you know, everybody focuses on the horse race, but there are so many other questions that these uh-huh. polls can test that I think uh, can tell us an awful lot. I, I'm interested in what you which yeah. ones you like. One, one of it is, is where are we in the, that particular election cycle? So right now. I like throwing out the net and everybody has their own, you know, style to this, but I like throwing out the net wide 
Um, I don't like to go to likely voters until closer to, to the primary. I understand why campaigns do that and go with listed samples, for example, because they're really trying to reach those prime voters. Um, I, I'm interested at this point in the campaign more in sort of like how are how are the how's the potential electorate responding to these candidates? Because yeah. um, I'm not worried about the precision of the decimal points like these debates uh, were creating. Uh, I'm more interested in how the voters are reacting. Obviously, what Obama, how he's being viewed is very important. It, it tells me a lot about what Hillary Clinton's strategy is going to be. Um, you know, how does she try, for example, to, you know, maintain the Obama coalition without making it look like the third term and how he's doing will really shape what she does. So I find that really interesting. And I think, you know, look, what's really becomes most telling as we get close, let's say, to a general election way down the road a, a year from you know November, um, those final polls, not only for the gap of who's ahead and who's behind in which battleground state, but I, I really love looking at the demography. How's the electorate shifting? So in a sense, it's not even the ballot test questions. It's like you start with adults and then you go to registered voters and then you go to you know, your likely voters and who's falling out? What percentage of the electorate, if I knew now, what percentage of the general electorate was going to be, let's say, white, African-American or Latino, I would know an awful lot about who's going to be the next president. Yep. So, I, so I really liked – I'm really eager to see – and this is a long way off, obviously – how those – demographic profiles of the electorate shift from election to election because Mitt Romney got the same share of the white vote as did Ronald Reagan, uh, Bush 41, Eisenhower. Uh, You know, the problem for Mitt Romney is that the number of white voters as a share of the total electorate keeps dropping. So the question is, if I had to know one statistic, I'd like to know what is the share of the white vote going to be in November of 2016? That's going to tell me an awful lot about who's going to be elected president. And that I find really fascinating. Uh, right direction, wrong direction, of course, everybody looks at. But, you know, the right direction, wrong direction wasn't all that terrific last time. And uh, Obama was reelected anyway. So, uh, you know, maybe that's not as telling as some other questions. People have been pretty ticked off for a pretty long time. And it doesn't seem to be affecting which way they vote. It, we still have this sort of backlash from midterm to to general and you're right it's all about the demography of the electorate yep yep demography is destiny someone far smarter than i once said (laughs) (laughs) well lee thank you so much we really appreciate you jumping on the phone with us and uh walking us through uh some of your thoughts about uh the role of polling right now and uh hope you can uh join us again down the road Hey, I, I'd really like to. This was a, this was a, I must say, a, you know, a, a really good set of questions and uh, and and a good, you know, good dialogue. So I I, I enjoyed it. Good. And I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I made the baby cry. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, the baby is is already sick of polling coverage. <laughs> <laughs> There's got to be a line in there somewhere. And I can't quite think of it. But if I do, I'll, I'll email it to you guys. <laughs> uh, well, thanks again, Lee. Take care. Hey, great. Nice talking to you. So our key findings, polling is as much of the story this week as the debate. But when pollsters find that troubling, then I think that's potentially a problem. Even with all the public polling, some storylines like Trump's bump or Sanders versus Clinton end up being Rorschach tests anyway. And if the polls are driving campaign news this far out, we have a long campaign ahead of us. So make sure you've subscribed to the pollsters. 
We are so thankful that Lee Mirangoff of the Marist Poll was able to join us today. Uh, you can listen to us in coming weeks, debate even more about the uh, debate, the impact of the debates. Um, we'll be talking a little bit about, uh, hopefully next week, some polling experiments that I'm doing at Echelon where we're trying to use um, some new online survey tools and we're going to release everything publicly and it'll be a big methodological um, festival for us to talk about. So be sure you've tuned in. Great. Uh, you can find us at uh, at the pollsters. You can find Margie at at Margie O'Mero, and you can find me at at K Soltis Anderson. We are available on almost all of your uh, favorite podcast services, um, and you can also come find us on Facebook, where we are always posting fun new tidbits about public opinion data. Great, thanks. See you next week. When we listen to the radio, we never agree on the station. Classic rock, hip hop, pop. Guys, quiet. The one thing we do agree on, we all want an awesome free phone. That's why we switched to MetroPCS. Stop by MetroPCS with the whole family and get four free phones of your choice from brands you love, like Samsung, Motorola, and LG when you switch. MetroPCS. Wireless. Figured out. Coverage not available in some areas. Sales tax not included in phone price. Free phone requires port. Excludes numbers on the T-Mobile network. See store for details and terms and conditions.